You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm okay. I'm at the tail end of what turned out to be kind of a bad cold, which actually I think was COVID. So really, not a, yeah, because Karina has it now, and she this morning couldn't taste or smell her. Did food. you not take a test when you when you got sick? You did not take a COVID test. No, I don't. I don't do that anymore. Should I? Uh, I think my wife would uh, would argue in favor of that. Yes. Yeah. She's in well, favor of uh, hourly COVID tests, regardless of of your the, health status. You know? They're kind of expensive now, so that's that's the main reason I don't. I did stay inside despite being in South Carolina near Myrtle Beach for the week. I stayed mm. inside well, that's so that I wouldn't get other people. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but you're back in North Carolina. I am. Yeah, back in Asheville. So that's good. That'll help me recover. So this is an unusual edition of Earthling Unplugged. Normally, when we do one of these on Friday, we kind of go over some of the items in the Friday edition of Non-Zero Newsletter, a.k.a. the Earthling. Uh, this week, for complicated reasons, there is no such uh, issue. Um, and uh, But we're still going to we're, we're gonna press on and uh, talk about the kinds of things we would have that would have been in the Earthling mm-hmm. had there been an Earthling. And uh, see how that goes. Right. And there was a lot of stuff this week. It seemed like a busy news week. There was. Mm -hmm. Not all of the news good. In fact, I'm trying to think of some good news. And offhand, I can't. But maybe we'll get to some. But Mm -hmm. uh, if if we're going to start with with Gaza, I guess it's bad news, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Israel-Palestine. So the latest development, it's a little murky, at least the last time I was looking at, like, the New York Times breakdown of events. but. We know that in Gaza City, or a little south of Gaza City, a lot of people were lining up for a convoy of aid delivery trucks, food trucks, I guess. And at some point, Israeli forces fired on the crowds of people. Um, There was a chaotic scene, as some people have described it in the media. And last I saw, according to the numbers I saw on, I think, Al Jazeera, over 100 Palestinians had been killed and over 700 had been wounded. Um, So a lot of people injured and killed. Um, Of course, Israel is saying that they were killed mostly because of the stampede, that the people were approaching the soldiers, and then the soldiers felt threatened and fired on them. I think some Middle Eastern outlets are reporting that it's just a massacre. Uh, Israeli forces killing a lot of Palestinians who were desperately waiting for the food delivery. And I guess we should say that northern Gaza has not had a lot of humanitarian assistance able to get mm-hmm. through. So circumstances are especially dire in that part of Gaza. What, what do you want to say about this? Um, yeah, it is unclear what happened. I mean, it sounds like there was some of all of the above. Some people were shot by Israeli troops. Some people were run over. And maybe some people were uh, stampeded by other people. I don't know. Israel has not released an unedited uh, version of its overhead infrared satellite, which would, I think, be extremely illuminating if it did, because you can make out the individual people. You would be able to see where there's an initial disturbance and so on. Mm -hmm. They've released uh, edited things, but I I think what we need is the whole thing. I heard a guy on PBS NewsHour last night 
saying that, um, you know, uh, he, he was he's head of, I think, Refugees International. He had been a very high ranking official in the uh, Biden administration. Um, and he said Israel doesn't like to go through international aid organizations and wanted to show that it could do this without their intermediation. And I, I guess that didn't work out. I mean, I, I, I don't think they just went out and decided to massacre Palestinians, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, but I, I suspect uh, things got out of control. Maybe soldiers freaked out. And, you know, look, I mean, uh, if if Israel was permitting um, a, a kind of ongoing coherent flow of aid, I think this kind of thing wouldn't happen. I mean, when, when people show up in the middle of the night uh, surrounding trucks trying to get what they can, that's a sign that things aren't well. And, and in fact, one thing you're starting to hear this week for the first time that I know of is actual uh, babies dying of malnutrition, like numbers reported. I heard it was two a couple of days ago. Yesterday, I heard that eight had died. So, you know, the uh, the humanitarian catastrophe, seen, the, you know, that people have been predicting. I mean, it's already a humanitarian catastrophe in certain ways, but actual, you know, shortage of food killing significant numbers of people um, seems to be happening. Right. I and mean, did you see this story from two weeks ago that the Israeli finance minister Smotrich was blocking a U.S. shipment of food aid? to gaza i didn't see it it wouldn't surprise me it, um, it was quite awkward i mean the the timing was super awkward because a few days earlier biden had issued this memorandum saying that you know he intended to enforce this u.s law which prohibits military assistance to countries that um block u.s humanitarian assistance um, which is precisely what what israel decided to do one reason you might not have heard about it is because a few days later israel backtracked and said they would allowed the delivery of this aid um but yeah it was it was quite surprising at the time maybe not surprising but it was so awkward for the biden administration blinken had already secretary of state antony blinken had already thanked israel for you know permitting this uh aid to be delivered not yeah. knowing that it was going to lang languish for weeks and officially be blocked by the finance minister and that uh food delivery apparently included enough flour to feed 1.5 million Gazans for like five months. I think flour is in especially short supply to the point where I've even heard stories of Gazans using animal feed as a substitute for, for flour. Oh yeah. They've been saying that all week. Um, mm -hmm. No, it's very bad. Uh, and you know, Biden's reluctance to actually confront Israel in any kind of forceful way and actually use the leverage the U S has is something that we've all discussed before. It's very relevant to this uh, kind of cluster of pieces in foreign affairs that bear on uh, the future uh, mm -hmm. for Palestinians and for the whole Israel-Palestine thing. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting, um, you know, I guess, I guess foreign affairs uh, in some ways deserves uh, a pat on the back for putting all this together. Um, what, uh, what, what are the, uh, so how many, how many, how many pieces are there's three different I think, pieces? Right? Yeah, there were, so two articles, I believe on the viability of the two-state solution. So mm -hmm. one is called the two-state mirage that's by Mark Lynch and Shibley Talhami. 
And mm -hmm. they argued that the two-state solution is not viable, that it's been on the outs for a long time. And then after October 7th, it's totally dead. Um, and then there's another piece called The Strange Resurrection of the Two-State Solution by Martin Indyk, who I think recognizes the difficulties of the two-state solution, but thinks that you know the, the situation now in Gaza has so highlighted the need for a solution. Um, and this is the last solution remaining. It's kind of the only one that he thinks is plausible, if I understand him correctly. And it's one that still not only the US, but China and Arab countries are referring to. Um, so so he thinks it's still viable. And then there was a third thing by Foreign Affairs where they just, as they sometimes do, they ask a bunch of experts what they think about the issue and then produced a little graphic showing, you know, where the experts fall on how viable they think the two-state solution is. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh you know, there's a there's a the the Mark uh the Mark Lynch uh Shibley Talami piece has a, a quote that summarizes what I've been saying for a while. Uh, I mean, occasionally saying it, thinking it a lot, but the quote is, whether acknowledged or not, the rejection of both the two-state outcome and a single state based on equality for all, uh, and I would intervene and say it doesn't look like either of those things is happening uh, anytime soon, uh, based on equality for all, leaves two possibilities, they write. The further entrenching of Jewish supremacy and apartheid-like controls over a non-Jewish population that will soon outnumber Jewish Israelis, or the large-scale transfer of Palestinians from the land, as some Israeli cabinet ministers have openly called for. I mean, I remember a few months ago, I said to Mickey Kaus on this podcast, like, I, it's, it seems like they're headed for either flat-out undeniable apartheid or ethnic cleansing. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand a third future, and I wish that, that somewhere in this cluster of articles there was a lot of hope for another future, but I don't see one. Um, mm -hmm. The, uh, I mean, I agree with with uh, Mark Lynch and Shibley Telami that a two state solution is uh, extremely, extremely improbable to ever materialize at best, which is kind of what they say. I'm not sure they give it zero percent chances, but um, you know, the but but everyone remains in denial over this, right? Like the foreign affairs. You know, for uh, the foreign affairs piece where they kind of surveyed experts mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the proposition was, um, uh, what was it? Two state solution is no longer viable or something. What was the, the yes. actual question they asked? And and then they, they they put a graph of like numbers of people who agree or disagree. And, you know, a much larger number of these foreign policy elites disagree. They keep hope alive. Uh, mm -hmm. A number of them strongly disagree or disagree with a high level of confidence, as they put it. Um, and I just think uh, they're living in a dream world. And this is the problem. I mean, they have been in denial for so long. And, and I think maybe the best example is uh, the most kind of ironic example, in a way, uh, is Aaron David Miller who, of course, has been in the middle of the peace process often. Uh, he's no longer, you know, he's kind of semi-retired now. But uh, he's the one who famously said, I mean, he's often been the American guy or one of them in the negotiations. And he's the one who famously said that the problem is that the U.S. in these negotiations has been Israel's lawyer. In other words, they've kind of posed as some kind of impartial mediator but basically what they've done is go to the Israeli side and say, well, what do you want? 
and they tell us, and then we say, okay, we'll try to get that from you. And then we go to the Palestinians and say, okay, this is what we want. And they're like, uh, I don't know. And they say, well, okay, we'll give you 1% more. What do you say now? And they go, uh, and then we say, see, we, we offered them a state, which mm. is not even remotely true. They've never been offered an actual state. Um, and, uh, I want to, I want to quote, if I can find it, uh, what, what, uh, Aaron David Miller says, he says he's very confident that this is false, that, 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 that a two-state solution is no longer viable. He says, very confident if, if, so in other words, these are the circumstances under which we may get a two-state solution. If the three elements that have never been present align in any future negotiation, and he starts out with strong leaders who are masters of their politics, not prisoners of their ideologies, and who come to the two-state idea not as a result of external pressure, but because they genuinely believe it's in the best interest of their people. And then there's these other things we need. A mediator who's willing to do this, and we need this, we need the Arab states, this. But just freeze frame right there, okay? Uh, leaders who are masters of their politics. Now, you need to have that, presumably, in America, in Israel, in the Palestinian side. I don't think we've ever once had it in America, okay? Yeah. I mean, in the sense of, if by masters of their politics, he means a, a president who can overcome the resistance of the pro-Israel forces who have kept us from ever offering the Palestinians an actual state, for example. Um, we've, we've never had, we've had presidents who I think have made good faith efforts, but certainly uh, not in several decades have we had one who, who had anything like success. And I think, I mean, there's a couple of good examples right now. like. Uh, first of all, perhaps most relevant to this is uh, Biden saying to Bibi, you know, his his plan for ending this war is, is for that to include a path to two state solution, a path. Mm -hmm. OK. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we all know the path's not going to lead anywhere. We, we've seen a path, the Oslo Accords that had much better chances of going somewhere than we'd have now for various reasons. Uh, it didn't. Um, for reasons we could get into but biden you know keeps and, and bb won't even buy biden is basically saying to bb will you at least pretend that you could that israel could someday live with a two-state solution that's all i'm asking just say you'll embark on a path and bb's mm -hmm. like fuck you no i'm not even gonna i'm not even you know and i think that actually reflects to some extent the sentiment of the israeli people especially after October 7th. And, you know, we can't even get that far. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, the reason, the many reasons two state is very, very challenging at this point would take a long time to spell out. But it's like, my point is just, Aaron David Miller says, yeah, we can do this if, right. you know, if I find a unicorn. And right. some other things happen. Yeah, it, we don't it, even have the political preconditions for doing something that would be very difficult, even just logistically um, establishing a Palestinian state. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But what, what are then the... So so I think you said it earlier, and you apparently said it in your conversation with Mickey Kells. The other option is what? It's just forced displacement or... Yeah, it's either it's either look... Uh, this is apartheid. We, mm -hmm. the West Bank is ours, but if you're Palestinian and live there, you don't get to vote. 
and you don't get too process of you know the the current situation except more uh, Israel's more explicit about it now they may i guess wisely decide not to annex the whole thing so they can still say well the Palestinians who can't vote aren't actually living in the Israeli state or something but i mean come on at some point the charade ends and mm-hmm. uh and Netanyahu's already said multiple times throughout the war that Israel plans on having security control over Gaza in the aftermath, and and there will be some non-Hamas Palestinian leadership governing it. But ultimately, Israel is in control, which was, the, you know, the status quo antebellum, basically, except for the Hamas part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think his preference would be for ethnic cleansing of Gaza. I mean, there there are uh, cabinet level officials who have been explicit about that, and he. Well, he's come pretty close. I think he, he would like Egypt uh, to aid in the humanitarian evacuation of Gaza or whatever, whatever they would say. But, you know, if they go to Egypt, they ain't coming back uh, mm-hmm. because Israel's not going to let them back in. And um, so, yeah, you, you, you can have apartheid, ethnic cleansing, two state or some version of a one state solution. Which ranges from, you know, an Islamist state run by Hamas uh to uh a jewish state run by israel encompassing all of historic palestine mm-hmm. uh but what the status of uh you know jews would be in the first case or arabs in the second case i don't know but i don't think it would be uh i don't think you'd have full political participation of all parties in either of those two extreme cases now there are these uh things in the middle of the spectrum some kind of binational state, confederation, so on. Um, Dahlia, I think her name is Scheinlin in Israel, has has done a lot of work on one of these. Um, and, uh, you know, it's out there, but, uh, I mean, certainly the, the, the kind of straightforward version of one state is let the Palestinians vote, we'll see what happens. I mean, the Israelis are not going to, not going to mm. let that happen. Mm-mm. Um, that's why I think Dahlia is work. You know, her her work is more on something where you know there would be it wouldn't be that straightforward, but there would be this kind of you know some kind of confederation that would give both people some sort of security. But um, I think uh, in the Earthling we had an item a few months ago about this proposal of a confederated arrangement. Maybe I can find that and put it in the show notes because I remember. It didn't make me optimistic, but I thought, okay, there are people giving serious thought to these kind of policy plans. Yeah. Uh, so that was interesting. I, I think hers may be one of the more uh, one of the more serious, but I doubt she would even say that uh, in the near term we can see any sort of support for something like that. Um, you know, I think, and again, that foreign affairs, if you look at that kind of map of people who can still contend that Tuesday can happen. And, and the fact that it's a large majority of the people they surveyed, I mean, that's the problem. This mm-hmm. is representative. In fact, I, I, w- I suspect that they actually went out of their way to find some Arab voices, uh, you know, Arab American or pro-Palestine voices in America who aren't that influential, but they wanted them in there and they included them. And still you see mainly uh, people who are in denial. Now, it's true uh, there are some people 
in that survey who are kind of in denial, you know, because they they want uh, they're not like it's not because they're so pro-Israel that uh, that they're just trying to cling that they just don't want to admit what kind of future does, in fact, seem to be in store. Right. Mm -hmm. It's more like. They're pro-Palestine, but don't want to admit what kind of future, you know, because if that future is bad for both from right. the point of view of, uh, I mean, if you're some liberal American pro-Israel person, uh, then you might well not champion either ethnic cleansing or apartheid, not want to admit that that's where you're headed. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're pro-Palestine, you want to keep the conversation alive about giving Palestinians some kind of state naturally mm -hmm. but you know it seems to me that the first step to making anything good happen is to reckon with the political obstacles to that in america right because i've always thought you know that um you know it, it you know like if i were american dictator for life which you know, is an aspiration I haven't totally let go of, but it's starting to look like it may not happen. But if I were, it wouldn't be that hard. If you were totally insulated from American political forces, I mean, it'd be pretty hard now. But 20, 30 years ago, you know, you would just you would just go, you'd figure out like, okay, what can the Palestinians live with? Rather than just asking Israel first, you say, what can the Palestinians live with? You might modify that negotiation with them and say, okay, here's what we'll try to get you. And then you would then you would say, okay, this is what we think the deal is. Like, mm -hmm. no significant negotiations. Just, this is what we think the, a fair deal is. Uh, neither party has to accept it. But if Israel doesn't accept it, it's the end of all aid. It's the end of all military support. And we will not protect you at the UN. And I think there was a time when you could have done that and Israel would have accepted it. Mm -hmm. um, but in any event, that's not, that's not politically realistic. And, uh, you know, in American politics, to be completely insulated uh, from the forces that don't, uh, in American politics, who don't want to see Palestinians given an actual sovereign state with all of the things that that entails. Um, yeah, it reminds me of a thing that we're going to be discussing later related to Saddam Hussein. Um, the Stephen Cole book that that recently came out on Saddam Hussein and the Iraq War. Where did you see the part where Bill Clinton was talking to Tony Blair? about Saddam Hussein and said, I, I would call the bastard up if I could. I could just call him, hammer it out, see what he's thinking, but I can't because the press will kill me. Um, it's another example of how presidents apparently feel very hum hamstrung by uh, U.S. domestic politics. Um, this pops up in all sorts of places. Um, and yeah, I, I totally agree with you that that's, that's the primary thing that needs to be taken care of now. I mean, one this would be really kind of uh fantastical like i don't think this is going to happen but uh, if people were were more reasonable maybe it would you know china is saying things about a two-state solution right now they their uh some of their dignitaries have said surprisingly critical things about israel um things that are sympathetic about you know, gaza you know if the u.s kind of seeded some of its um you know tendency to try to dominate the Middle East and let China kind of step in and, and help take care of things. That, that's another, that would be another pathway forward, I think. Um, well, I say, I say turn over the Middle East to China and I'm yeah. not kidding. I mean, because 
because they their whole foreign policy is less ideologically driven than ours. Right. And they are very pro-stability. And what would you say the Middle East is lacking among other things? Stability. And, uh, and you know, they don't have a dog in this fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I mean, the truth is, in a certain sense, our resistance to Chinese influence in the Middle East helped bring on October 7th in the sense that, I mean, October 7th, a lot of people think was largely a reaction against the whole Abraham Accords as sustained by Biden. It starts with Trump. Biden sustains it, says, "Okay, now we want Saudi Arabia to join the Club of Arab States who have recognized Israel, which, Mm -hmm. of course, is a threat to the Palestinians since since uh, that was supposed to be the 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 reward to Israel for finally solving the Palestinian conflict is a recognition from Arab states. Um, But one thing that apparently really revved up uh, the Biden administration's determination to sustain the Arab Accords was when China stepped in and orchestrated a kind of detente uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which right. is a good thing in principle, since that is the big fissure in the Middle East. In, in terms mm-hmm. of the place the biggest war could 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 happen over, that's the division. Us, Saudi Arabia, Israel versus Iran, Syria, their so-called proxies, whatever, maybe Russia. Um, but but apparently we found that so threatening. We had to step in and and uh, say, no, no, we'll uh we'll we'll lure Saudi Arabia away from Iran. Mm-hmm. And now, now, now October 7th was in the planning for a long time, including before this. But my point is uh but 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 that development in the Biden administration uh uh made it, if anything, more likely. Um and uh, it's just a sign of how screwed up things are, I would say. Right. Now, bit, go ahead. Do you want to talk about the Michigan primary that's related to the whole domestic yeah, politics yeah, issue? Yeah, I, I should quickly say a little more about the the, the two-state mirage piece by Mark Lynch and Shibley Telhami in, in um, Foreign Affairs. It's basically, you know, at least... Um, at le- you know, give up on, for now, magic solutions, one state, two state, uh, but at least, here's how they put it, uh, the U.S. must stop shielding Israel from the consequences of severe violations of international law and norms at the United Nations and other international organizations, and uh, Washington can use its power to oppose conditions and policies it will not support, whether that is the expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza. Continued seizure of Palestinian land in the West Bank, continuation and deepening of an apartheid-like system of military. Uh, yeah, and the Biden administration would maybe say they're doing a little of that, but even this calls for uh, more in the way of resistance to pro-Israel forces in American politics than is customary to mm-hmm. to to you know to not veto these resolutions calling the settlements illegal, for example, at the UN, which is what they're calling for. So I guess it's better than nothing, uh, but I I do think, you know, until we have an honest conversation about the political constraints facing Biden, which I think are not as strong as he seems to think, he could definitely get away with more, but, it's going to be hard for America to use its its power uh, productively. 
Right. So yeah, the reason I mentioned this Michigan primary is it kind of exemplifies this countervailing uh, domestic political pressure on Biden as it relates to the Israel-Palestine conflict um, in Michigan on Tuesday during the Democratic primary. I think something over 100,000 voters marked uncommitted. Um, this wasn't a spontaneous decision. There were political campaigns trying to figure out how to register some sort of protest against Biden's handling of, uh, you know, or the way he's relating to Netanyahu throughout the Gaza war. Um, so that amounted to over 13% of ballots cast. They marked on committed. It was supposed to be a clear protest vote related to Gaza. Michigan obviously has, I think, the largest Arab American population um, by the percentages of any state in the United States. And it's probably going to be a close vote in Michigan in the general election. So some people have been wondering if uh, Biden is spooked by this. I think there have been some reports saying that he is. I've also seen some indications, some, some, I think on Twitter, I saw someone saying that um, this actually wasn't an unprecedentedly high percentage for uncommitted. I think even in one of Obama's elections, I guess in 2008 during the Democratic primary, um, it was like 10% mark uncommitted or something. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, this was higher than that. This was percentage wise, this was 13, but this was 13, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah, there have been, I mean, this is unusually high by any measure, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, this, yeah, Michigan could sink Biden uh, if other things don't. And I think it's naive to think that in, in the case of Michigan, especially, I mean, I think there's this hope in the Biden administration. If we can solve this Gaza thing soon enough, people will forget about it. Well, first of all, I don't see how you solve this before November, honestly, given mm -hmm. Israel's intentions. It's like, there's going to be, Either there will have been something you won't forget that soon, like out-and-out out ethnic cleansing, or there's going to be an Israeli occupation that is not going to go swimmingly, probably. Um, and or uh, Israel worse. invades Lebanon. I mean, well, that could heat up. Yeah, I mean, you could yeah. have uh, all-out war. Although lately, Iran has, as it as it always has been, really demonstrating once again it's a rational actor. Mm -hmm. And has uh, leaned on its, uh, you know, so-called proxies in, especially Iraq, to quit attacking mm -hmm. U.S. forces because it doesn't want things to get out of control. But yeah, no, uh, the war, it could spin out of control. Various bad things could happen. But, but the other thing about Michigan is, you know, where the opposition is not just young progressives, the opposition to Biden's Gaza policy, but... Arab Americans, I assume that it's a very heartfelt thing, the way Israel is for some American Jews. And mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't think that's going away. I mean, they've just seen too much carnage. And I just I just would suspect that a lot of them are going to have trouble uh, bringing themselves to the, to the ballot box. Uh, mm -hmm. But we'll see. Right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, some of some people who support Biden on Twitter are saying that Biden should stress that, you know, Trump would be even worse on, on Israel, Palestine. I mean, there's still a question of how this will translate to the general election, um, this uncommitted vote. The New York Times, uh, what's their podcast called? The Daily. Um, mm -hmm. They were interviewing this 
um, older woman, long time. Uh, she was involved in Democratic Party politics for a very long time, always supports a Democratic president. And she's very upset by the Gaza thing. And she really exemplified this broader trend. They were trying to find anyone to say um, that they were definitely going to be voting for Biden in the primary. They went to some Islamic center or something. I think they found one person out of 50 who sounded enthusiastically um, pro-Biden. So he, he's got a, a problem there. Um, do, you, do you want to talk about Russia, Ukraine? Sure. Uh, which part of it? Well, on the Russia side, I mean, we don't have to talk about this long, but Zelensky's funeral was today and some very brave Russians were out there shouting pro or anti-Putin, anti-war slogans and you know, throwing flowers at the hearse, carrying Navalny's body um, mm -hmm. in Moscow. Um, I was kind of surprised, you know, my Russian father-in-law was in town. He visited America the last couple of weeks and he was telling me, you know, there's I mean, it must be in the collective Russian psyche or something. He was telling me that there was this was going to happen, that people were going to have a pro Navalny showing today. And I told him, well, I think that Putin isn't allowing some public display of pro Navalny sentiment. You know, he's put some restrictions on the funeral as conditions for giving the body back to Navalny's family. But uh, yeah, my father in law was was right. There were thousands of people. So that was that was interesting to see. Um, yeah, I think did they still there were some restrictions that made it harder for it to they couldn't have cameras in the church where mm. there, there was an mm. open casket uh, but some people did sneak some photographs so mm. i saw a picture of of uh, alexei navalny's like uh, face um so yeah and there were i'm sure there were there were other restrictions as well um and on the ukraine side you wanted to talk about Zelensky's new general yeah, I mean, he had fired the old commanding general, what, a couple of weeks ago or something, and now he's got this uh, new one. Um, I mean, you may have their names at your uh, fingertips. So Zelensky was the old Z one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sierski, the new one. And, you know, it sounds like, I guess the, the, the main thing I've learned that's alarming is that apparently... You know, Zaluzny was in charge during Bakhmut, which most people think was not handled that well, that, that Ukraine hung on to it too long. Zelensky himself made a big deal of going there and saying, we're, here we stand, we won't lose Bakhmut. Then they lost Bakhmut. Mm. One thing I've heard is that the new guy, Sierski, um, is, uh, was championing that, that it wasn't Zaluzny, although Zaluzny was nominally in command, he was not the one that was saying, we got to hang on to Bakhmut forever uh, and, and, and bear huge costs while, main, uh, you know, many of the Russians being killed are just these guys who were let out of prison and are just spending six months in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, why don't we let them go back and rob stores in, in Russia? Um, and uh, so that's not good. That, that, that Sierski is this political, like loyal guy but far from a strategic mastermind, not widely respected by the troops, and so on. Of course, also Zaluzny, the fired one, is uh, considered in the long term a political rival of Zelensky's, and maybe that's why he got rid of him, although it seems to me he almost, uh, I don't know, I, I might have done the opposite. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he, he uh, but uh, for uh, out of political considerations. So, 
you know, I mean, obviously things are not looking great on the battlefield. Uh, they've lost uh, this big town, Advivka, whatever. Uh, that's not right. Advivka. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, which they, uh, they, had, they had held, you know, I, I don't think Russia's ever been in control of that. And it's a pretty big city. Yes. Um, and people yeah. are worried that Russia could, you know, if Ukraine does get uh, the U.S. weapons, that Russia could actually go on a roll, um, mm -hmm. break through the defensive lines. Right. Yeah. It's, I think, become obvious to almost everyone now that Ukraine's not just going to win outright and expel all of the Russian invaders. And so the question now, I think, is one, you know, can they at least achieve a stalemate? Um, and two, if Russia does break through um, and is clearly decisively winning the war, how is the West going to react? I mean, there has been a couple of developments related to this issue that are somewhat concerning. Um, so the Slovak prime minister before this big meeting of European leaders in Paris, um, and for context, he is uh, very skeptical of the whole Ukraine war. I think he sees it as a kind of NATO proxy war. His predecessor was very pro-Ukraine and Slovakia was sending a lot of weapons, just like the Czech Republic does. Um, but so the vote for him was interpreted as kind of this tide of public opinion swinging in Slovakia against Ukraine. Uh, sometimes he's called Russia friendly, but I think that that's an exaggeration. Um, but anyway, he, he said that he was a he had some indication that European leaders were considering sending their own ground troops to Ukraine if Russia breaks through. And then the thing that you and I had planned to discuss, Macron um, seemed to confirm that warning, um, saying that it wouldn't be, it wasn't ruled out. Um, he was asked at some press conference mm -hmm. about that possibility. And I think his language has a little bit been exaggerated in the media as if he's like announcing that Europe is sending ground troops or something. Um, but it, it was a little bit, you know, more ambiguous than that. He just said it was kind of like an all options are on the table thing, but related specifically to the yeah. idea of some European countries sending ground forces to Ukraine. Since then, some European leaders, Britain, Czech Republic, uh, Germany have said, no, we're not going to be sending our troops to Ukraine. Um, and then maybe a couple things to say about this, um, in Responsible Statecraft, Anatole Levin and George Beeb, is that how you pronounce his name? Beeb? I'm not sure. It's B-E-E-B-E. -E -E. Right. Um, they, they, interpreted, uh, they interpreted the statement by Macron as uh, putting some pressure on Germany uh, to send its long-range missiles, mm -hmm. cruise mm -hmm. missiles, um, to Ukraine, and on putting pressure on uh, Republicans in Congress uh, and the Speaker of the House to send some military aid to Ukraine because it's sorely needed. Um, but Anatole even and Beeb say that this is, in their words, all folly. Like, they're really, they think that uh, time is running out and we, the West still has a little bit of leverage right now. And the only reasonable sane thing to do is to push for a negotiated peace now instead of contemplating sending troops or more cruise missiles that Ukraine would probably use to strike inside of Russia, prompting some aggressive Russian reaction, mm -hmm. uh, which would intensify these debates about how the West should respond. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure uh, a game theorist would point out that, that Ukraine will be in a stronger bargaining position if Congress authorizes these weapons. 
Mm-hmm. The trouble is that if Congress authorizes these weapons, then it'll be back to, you know, yes, victory can be ours, which is a mirage, barring some technological development we haven't seen, like, you know, whole new kind of drones uh, flying from Silicon Valley to Kiev. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the paradox. It's been the problem all along that Biden just just I, I don't know what's going on in his head. Uh you know, I mean, it gets back to Bill Clinton saying, you know, if I talk to Saddam Hussein, do you realize how much blowback there would be? I think these guys, I just think they're chicken. I mean, <laughs> I, one thing Trump demonstrated in 2016 is is just, it wasn't so much that there's a huge wellspring of American first sentiment out there. It was more like Americans don't give a shit about foreign policy as much as you think. Yes, there yeah. are interest groups that lobby hard and uh, and they're not nothing. But um, it, it it just isn't the case that, I don't know, that if Israel pressed Ukraine, I mean, that if the, the U.S. pressed Ukraine or pressed Israel, well, let me put it this way, Biden would get into less political trouble for pressing Ukraine uh, to go to the bargaining table than he would to press Israel all the way to some kind of two-state solution, I guess. that That's an yeah. easier lift. Um, but I think in general, he, you know, he, he just seems weirdly conflict averse for a guy who's so deeply involved in two wars. Um, (laughs) yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that the Biden white house was stung by the reaction to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, because his poll numbers took a nosedive from which they haven't recovered. Right. And that Uh, was the, the blob at work. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, it was it was bungled uh, and, and there were a, a lot of stupid things about it, beginning with saying we'll do it on 9-11, announcing mm-hmm. in advance. Here's the day, an obvious political contrivance to make it that day. It was not handled well, but any sober assessment would have said at like right at that moment after it happened. Well, you know, it could have been a lot worse, could have been a mm-hmm. long civil war. That leads to Taliban control over a year and kills 50,000 people in the meanwhile, you know, Mm -hmm. but as it was, the Taliban just negotiated their way to control of all of these cities and they passed hands without anybody dying. Uh, But yeah, was it bungled? It was bungled. And and there were people who died as a result of that who wouldn't have died. But you just Mm -hmm. saw the blob and their media, you know, defenders all the way from Fox to MSNBC, standing up in unison and uh, getting indignant about it. And and I think, you know, that's, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I, I think the, the lack, the general lack of interest that people have about foreign policy actually makes this problem worse uh, in most cases, because then you just have, then Biden is just paying attention to the very motivated and active minority of people and special interest groups and weapons manufacturers, et cetera. Um, those are the ones driving the conversation about foreign policy. They mm-hmm. obviously have an agenda. And then all these issues are different. I think on Ukraine, there also Biden came in with this democracy versus autocracy thing. Um, they were going all in on on Ukraine, supporting Ukrainian democracy, uh, new military partnership agreements and and stuff. Um, that obviously blew up in their face afterwards. Um, 
maybe we can also talk about related to Russia, Ukraine. The the New York Times has a, a new report expose um, shedding light on the extent of CIA involvement in mm-hmm. Ukraine for ever since February 2014. Basically, ever since the middle of the Maidan revolution or putsch or coup or whatever you want to call it, uh, when Viktor Yanukovych was ousted from power uh, after he elected to sign this agreement with Russia rather than Ukraine, you know, uh, getting mm-hmm. closer economically and politically to Russia rather than with the EU. I mean, apparently during that Maidan revolution and shortly after, um, Ukrainian special services, um, intelligence services called up the CIA. Uh, the CIA went in, helped train them, cultivating a new group of intelligence officers who weren't loyal to Russia, who don't remember the Soviet Union or feel any kind of affinity with Russia, I should say. Um, and the, the opening paragraphs were, I was kind of surprised that they even made it into the New York Times. I don't have them in front of me, but it was just describing this uh, these 12 uh, underground bunkers uh, where intelligence operations are conducted from that were built and financed by the CIA. There were 12 of them along the Russian border. I feel like if Julian Assange had published that, he would be assassinated um, <laughs> soon thereafter. Uh, but what, what do you want to say about this New York Times um, story? I, I, I think, first of all, according to my clock, I should say it in overtime. I do want to talk mm-hmm. more about this, uh, but we should um, bring the public uh, part of the podcast to a close. Uh, encourage people to become members of the Non-Zero newsletter. Um, and uh, then you'll have access to this and all such overtimes on your podcast feed. Uh, and um, what else are we going to talk about in overtime? I do have, I, I do have to, you know, because I, I taped, uh, I was on the Russians with Attitude podcast. I taped it yesterday and we talked about this uh, with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to be on my podcast. Uh, before long um, and i think I'll, I'll mention at least one diplomat who thinks that nato might actually send troops to ukraine he, he's not dismissing these yeah i want to get back Macron. to that i, mm-hmm. I want to get back to that too i, mm-hmm. I don't think it's impossible that's been kind of shattered down for now i don't think it's impossible i want to talk about that um ai and, uh, ai uh we've got a, a, a paper that came out saying hallucination is inevitable mm-hmm. uh and elon musk is suing open ai i want to talk about that uh and uh, Steve Call's got a new book uh, about kind of mm, how we got into the Iraq war and our 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 our, our misassessment of Saddam Hussein. Um, and, uh, and maybe we'll get into some other things. But uh, again, uh, if you, especially if you just kind of support the cause uh, of uh, what is our cause, Andrew? Do you remember what our cause is? We've had a lot of causes that we're now unifying under the cause. There's of a grand unifying theme behind all our causes. Right. Apocalypse aversion, cognitive empathy, which is anti-tribalism, people's mm-hmm. perspective, anti-tribalism, uh, handling AI wisely. It's all one thing, folks. Mm-hmm. And but you can't find out why without going into overtime. and we encourage smashing like buttons rating reviewing and telling your friends saying mainly good things about us okay so uh we're heading into overtime this was a free preview of earthling unplugged to unlock the rest of this conversation 
and other exclusive audio content. Become an NZN member at nonzero.substack.com.